1: All
0: right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risks to our country. Freedom brings people together.
1: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 312 of We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle, and this was recorded on August 31st, 2018. Today we're going to talk uh, about the swamp. We're going to go inside the swamp and explain it to you with our friend Rob Cortell from Washington, D.C. We're going to talk about Paul Manafort and we're going to talk about the Jones Act, of which he is one of the world's most uh, authorities on that issue. So stick around, we'll be right back. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. All right, welcome to the show. Just like yesterday, I don't some some people uh, I don't mind making Harry sit through the intro, but when you're on Skype with somebody, it just seems a little weird to like sit there and uh, Hey, I want you to sit there for a minute or so. So, uh, so we'll jump into my conversation with Rob here in just a second. But one quick announcement, uh, just like yesterday. Hey, if you're not listening to the new Chris Spangle Show, then please, it's a daily conversation with you, just me and you as we talk about the news of the day, just a quick 20 to 30 minute thought. And uh, we're also sending you out at nine o'clock every night, a daily digest with all of the uh, shows, all of the different updates from the website, all kinds of news links on the Chris Spangle show uh, post on we are libertarians.com every day, like hundreds of, sometimes of news stories. I wouldn't say hundreds, but dozens sometimes. So anything that would be important that you might think is interesting, all you have to do every day is get that email and click on The Chris Spangle Show post, and then you're going to get, uh, I wouldn't say every day, but pretty much every day I'm going to give you a bunch of news that uh, is relevant to you. So please sign up for the email newsletter. I would appreciate if you did that, because here's the deal. If social media goes away, if we get Alex Jones, then we're still going to have our email, hopefully. So that's uh, one way. The website and the email are two ways that we're always going to be able to communicate with you along with this podcast. So, uh, we would love for you to sign up for our email newsletter at WeAreLibertarians.com. So, let's get into it. Enough of the promotions. Without further ado, here's my conversation with my good friend, Rob Cortell. If you're a new listener and you haven't listened to our Swamp Explained episodes, I want to tell you who I'm talking to. Uh, It is Rob Cortell, a 45-year fly on the wall in Washington, D.C., and Rob has worked for Republican presidential campaigns, government agencies like the EPA, and has been confirmed by the Senate to the U.S. Federal Maritime Commission, and he's also been a candidate for congress and senate so given his experience and iconoclastic views i like to have <laughs> i like to have rob on i don't know if you've heard this new intro uh i'd like to have rob on uh every every couple weeks and get his view on what is going on in the swamp and and give us an an insider's view or as close to an insider's view uh, as, as, uh, as I've ever come, (laughs) Rob is very personable, very interesting guy to talk to. We met on a trip and and when I went to students for Liberty and, uh, we've done, this is our third one of these and really it's kind of cool to check in and, and hear about the swamp, Rob. So thanks for being here with us.
1: Sure. And you should remind your listeners. I also have spent most of my career in the private sector,
0: yeah, and in, in, uh,
1: technology. So I'm, I'm not just a swamp monster.
0: No, he, he's not a swamp monster. Obviously, you wouldn't if you were if you were like super swampy. I don't think you'd be willing to come on a libertarian podcast and and say here's how things work in in the swamp. So we appreciate right. uh, getting together. So I want to start with Paul Manafort because you've told me that you actually know Paul Manafort to what yeah. to what degree. Um.
1: It's been a long time since we worked together. He, um, I think, I first met him in probably the Ford campaign. How many years ago was that? That was 1976. Um, and uh, you know, I've seen him around town and all that. And of course, he he had two business partners, uh, Black Ford Stone. But um, you know, we we would recognize each other. And uh, uh, he he he, I think he has been convicted of things which are not necessarily swamp-like. But um, the kinds of clients he's represented certainly are – many people would view as swamp-like.
0: So let me give some details on all the Paul Manafort stuff just so people are aware um he just got convicted i actually wrote some prep notes we've been trying to get together get our schedules together for a couple weeks so i wrote these notes and then he got convicted like the next day literally um (laughs) so he's he was accused of laundering 30 million in payments from the ukraine into the u.s without ever paying taxes or disclosing his foreign accounts to the u.s government which they frown upon apparently uh, he's also accused of defrauding several u s banks to get a set of hefty loans totaling more than 20 million allegedly because he needed cash once the Ukrainian regime was toppled and the money stopped coming in. Uh, this is from Vox by the way the, right. the most attention getting new detail on that front was the luxury goods. The government says Manafort bought front with his offshore account uh, he bought a fifteen thousand dollar coat made from ostrich uh, <laughs> How many ostrich coats do you have, Rob? uh zero okay (laughs) the indictment i'm not not sure i could actually even imagine that (laughs) (laughs) the indictment alleged manafort spent uh eight eight hundred and forty nine thousand dollars at a men's clothing store in new york and five hundred and twenty thousand in beverly hills but the ostrich is a new detail um and uh he he uh was also charged with Five counts of false income tax returns, and uh, also failure to report bank or financial assets. Um, All the charges here are either bank fraud, four counts, or bank fraud conspiracy, five counts, relating to several different loans or attempts to get loans from 2015 through January 2017. Um, So, you know, you go, and I'll put these show notes so you can go and read more details and get some of the links if if you're curious. Um, he will, also was put in solitary confinement, and I thought this was very swampy. Uh, this is yeah. an interesting yeah. detail here. Uh, Manafort is not confined to a cell. Between 8.30 a.m. and 10 p.m., Manafort has access to a separate workroom at the jail to meet with his attorneys and legal team. He has his own bathroom and shower facility. He has his own <laughs> personal telephone, which he can use more than 12 hours a day. Uh, those calls are limited to 15 minutes each, but when they cut off, he can just call the person back immediately. He's made nearly 300 phone calls in the last three weeks. Uh, He has a personal laptop he can use in his unit to review materials and prepare for his trial. He was providing an an extension cord to let him use his laptop in his unit or his workroom. He's not allowed to send emails, but he has developed a workaround for even that. um, And his legal team bring in laptops and he sends out emails. Uh, He's basically being treated like a A white-collar criminal. A white-collar criminal, exactly. Right. Right, right. So, so it, I thought
1: very. Of course, I don't know if any of that's still true. The um, well, so this is an interesting question. What part of that is like the swamp? So, lobbying is uh, cuts across all ideologies and um, politics and uh, genders and everything else. So, people lobby on healthcare and they lobby on uh, f- on behalf of foreign governments. They have to register, which is a key issue. Um, they lobby for. Uh, Christmas tree growers, they lobby for the Jones Act. They lobby for uh, for for probably something that nine tenths out of all the listeners on the show support. So lobbying has a bad name, but in fact, it's actually a way for people to speak to um, the government through someone who is there and can represent their point of view or in an articulate sort of way. Um, I think where um, he... Uh, of course, where he got caught uh, is on, I think he was convicted on 10 out of 18 counts or eight out of 18. I can't remember which, but in any case, he he was caught essentially on the same kinds of things that I hate to remind you, Al Capone was caught on right. <laughs> all those years ago. He was he was basically convicted of income tax evasion. And so, you know, they, they always say you can't escape the IRS. Um, where this is swamp-like is in... The kinds of clients that uh, I think a lot of people would say the kinds of clients that he's represented. And I don't know how many of your viewers ever read Doonesbury. But Doonesbury is a classic cartoon created by uh, a a Yale guy when he was at Yale and became, you know, very famous in the 60s, Vietnam War. On through that, um, a lot of social commentary. uh, it, it's it's uh, a kind of fun, uh, and he's recycling cartoons right now. But um, one of the key characters is uh, a guy na- named Uncle Duke, who was um, he was um, uh, modeled on Hunter Thompson, who was one of the great uh, crazy journalists of that era, and uh, to, to, you know really truly kind of crazy. Um, but Uncle Duke has become a K Street lobbyist. And one of his clients is a dictator from, uh, uh, from Berserkistan. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and uh, he, uh, he, he worked for him when he was over in Ber- Berserkistan. And now he's over here. And it's, you know, he's a dictator, and he kills people. And he his solution is always to kill people. And so um, the, the, I think the, the, the sense around Manafort is that a lot of the clients he represented are kind of like that, kind of sleazy Russian oligarchs and all the rest. And so there's not a lot of sympathy for the kind of lobbying uh, that he undertakes. And of course, he has been paid incredibly well for that. And it requires a lot of work, which is probably why you get paid so well. But um, and of course, where he went off the rails is you know, on the issues on which he was convicted. So that that's, I think, what when you look into the swamp, that's kind of the seedy side of it.
0: How much of your, in your experience, how much of lobbying in Washington, D.C. is that gross? Most of it's not.
1: You know, the, the, uh, as I said, you know, we tend to think of it as being for big special interests, but it's also for human interests. And, um, uh, well, think about something you support, Chris, um, Uh,
0: Let's say criminal justice reform, let's say sentencing for young men and women.
1: So there are people, there are probably two dozen groups that are working on that issue. Some of them would call themselves representatives, some would register as lobbyists because they're going to represent very specific interests. Um, But you know, the environmental groups all have lobbyists, the anti-environmental groups all have lobbyists. Um, They are um, I think what distinguishes a lobbyist from a citizen is that they are paid to represent somebody or some spe- some interest. But special interests are really all of us. And I'm now, you know, a lot of the tactics become a little suspect when you're up here. Um, and I think the thing, and I think the thing which really does make it kind of seedy, is the amount of money that flows. And I, later on, we're going to talk about this. But one of your uh, our listeners um, wrote in about sugar subsidies. So. Uh, you know, sugar subsidies, the, the, the sugar industry probably drops more money on the Congress than almost any industry you can think of. And <laughs> I, I saw a figure that virtually 50% of the Congress received money to, to support subsidies uh, for sugar, which drive up the price.
0: If you were to ask me, what do you think is the number one lobbying industry? Domino Sugar would not be. It would not be at the yeah, top of the list. That's amazing. I know.
1: I, I know. Well, of course, Big Oil and and a lot of others do it, but the healthcare industry is a huge, huge uh, lobbyist and expenditure. And there are people on both sides. There are hospitals lobbying. Their their doctors have their own lobby. Nurses have lobbies. Um, uh, every profession has a lobbyist. And of course, what they're trying to do is preserve their in, in some cases, preserve their particular interest and sometimes they're uh, trying to uh, uh, stop somebody else's. I, I uh, you know, and I of course have friends in all of these businesses. I was with a um, friend of mine from the uh, franchise uh, association. you know they they're franchisees and they're franchisors and everybody wants to preserve their position in the pecking order. So um, so I get- lobbying is not inherently evil, but I, I will say, I will say, and this is what I think bothers a lot of people: is the the amount of money that that is dropped by that industry and poli- other political interests is immense.
0: Well, it's, I had a fellow Washington D.C. resident on the show yesterday. His name was Todd Moore, and mm-hmm. we talked about uh, he was lo- he was lobbying. He was actually an advocate for um, patent troll reform, right? And the bill that he was championing. Ended up getting killed by uh, drug lobbyists because they were worried that it would mess up, you know, drug patents. And right. even though it was it was really tech related, and so I think we hear stories about like that. We hear stories about that more than we do, you know, maybe the, you know, the, the local citizens' action coalition or the Brennan Center with ending gerrymandering or or some of these things where where they actually do stop things from happening. It's hard to get good press on like on nothing happening yeah that's <laughs> um, right that's right so but that does exist and i'd always say that because here in indiana we have something called working the rail so right outside of the house and the senate is <laughs> is a is a railing and all along the rail that's where the, all the lobbyists hang out and some of the journalists and so when the you know session adjourns they all walk out and start working the rail and uh if you go and actually talk to a lot of these folks they're just they're people who love their country. They're people who are interested in politics. They believe in the cause they're working for. It's not as seedy as you think. And I think if you were to take 100% of the lobbyists, would you say that maybe 10% are are like a Paul Manafort who are working for causes that are just unseemly, or would it be higher, lower?
1: Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say like every profession is probably 1% or 2%. Per- but of course, mm-hmm. in this business, they get a lot of... Uh, visibility. Now, by the way, I assume your your listeners know where the term lobbying supposedly came from. No. Was, um, when President Grant was in office, um, he used to sit in the lobby of the, of the uh, Willard Hotel hmm. uh, drinking brandy and a cigar, and people um, uh, would come up and um, talk to him about their particular needs. Um, and uh, now, I have recently read that it's kind of a myth. Uh, That's a fun story to tell, um, but uh, the term lobbyist actually uh, appeared about 30 years before Grant, um, and it was really the lobby outside the chamber of the British Parliament. Uh, but uh, but it is true that Grant used to sit in the in the uh, the main room of the uh, Willard Hotel, and and there he was accosted by lobbyists.
0: <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> Uh, So one person that did not like Paul Manafort, uh, Paul Manafort offered his services up in 2000, and John McCain told him, as he did to so many people, to go to hell. Right. Uh, And John McCain passed away uh, this past weekend. Yes. Um, I have complicated feelings about John McCain, and there's something... I think a lot of people do. Yeah, which is part of the reason that I like John McCain is that he was an authentic person that... Uh, spoke his mind and spoke the way that he he just let every... I'm going to say what I want, and the rest of you can sort yourselves out. So right. I, I like that about John McCain. I obviously he disagree with a lot of his policies. And I do feel... And I and I spoke earlier this week on uh, The Chris Spangle Show, basically talking about how I feel there's a little bit of revisionist history going on right now. Of course. Um, so bef- before we get your thoughts on John McCain, <clears throat> as I watch some of this coverage, I get the sense from a lot of the people talking about John McCain and talking about the funerals and, and all this conversation, there is a little bit of—it's almost like they're having a funeral for the way Washington used to be.
1: Well, that's a, that's actually a pretty good analogy. I, I think you're exactly right. The, um, and, and it's also a platform for everybody who uh, has a beef with the way things are. I was, I was listening. I think it's great that Joe Biden— Um, was there and he was a friend and as he said they used to argue vociferously and and but they would still come out you know shaking hands and or not shaking hands at least probably going out to drink somewhere but um, and Washington has lost a lot of that I don't think there's any question and it's it's really kind of tragic in some ways because you know, they used to say that politics was the art of of the possible. Uh, it was like, why you know, don't watch politics in the process. It's like making sausage. And um, today, uh, you know, I think a lot of the issues that we face are because the Congress itself can't uh, come to a decision uh, because it is so split and torn and because no one's willing to give an inch. And so, uh, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be immigration. You know, nine tenths of the Congress could agree on what the answer is, but they're not going to budge from the position they've staked out in public. and And so that's the system's in a kind of gridlock there. but but McCain, you're right. McCain is a um, he's a complicated guy. he He clearly was heroic uh, to a lot of people. he um, um, I, I was working with uh, George W. Bush um, when he was running and of course McCain was in the other side. Um, but you know, here he's invited W and uh, Obama to speak at his funeral. So, um, and of course he had forged a relationship with them and, and all of those people, but he, he, he's a, he, he is a, he was a fiery tempered kind of guy. Um, he was definitely authentic. Um, uh, and he is he he in his death uh, used all of this to lob the last bomb at uh, at Donald Trump. So. <laughs> well, I feel like
0: there's also a little bit of revisionist history about McCain from McCain oh, himself. Oh, completely. You oh, know, absolutely. Because if you, I'm old enough now. I may sound and look young, but I'm old enough to remember the 2008 elections. And McCain was the wild man. If he got control of the military, was going to push the button. And you know, we need a, a temper even hand like Barack Obama oh, or, course, or Hillary yeah. Clinton. You know, he was just he was he was Donald Trump before there was Donald Trump, and all of the sudden now he is the elder statesman who is uh, the wise person, and 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 you know and there's some reasoning behind that because you look at the the split between john mccain and george w bush that was the big fight in the 2000s right between those two wings of the party and they don't seem that far apart compared to w and mccain versus donald trump let's say so, well, you know, but I, I,
1: well, I think that's true. But um, I, I would also say that uh, people obviously change over time. And McCain was here a very long time. I, I cannot ever forget the night he came out. He had lost, and the first words he spoke were, if I recall, were, "I am so proud of America," and I think he meant that in two respects. One is obviously just about our ability to carry out an election and get it over with. But he, I think he was really, uh, um, he was saying he was proud of the fact that despite he lost the fact that he lost um, this country had elected an African American to its highest, highest office. And um, that's something you might not have imagined five, 10 years before and uh, in some ways it's still hard to imagine today given the divisions within the country. So I, you know, I think he was a guy who could periodically step above his ego and he he um he, you know and he did. He
0: did. Yeah, I think he would have he would have been a much more successful presidential politician had he not done if he hadn't stuck to his damn principles. You know, and I think that <laughs> a, a lot of the people that felt that way were like, you know, if he had he he had these set of values, and he acted upon these sets of values. And if it cost him elections, if it cost him certain things, he was going to take that uh, that beating, and he would take those losses. And if he made mistakes, he would apologize. You know, like the if he had come out full throated and said what he believed about the flag flying over the South Carolina um, state capitol in two thousand, for instance, And had been authentic as opposed to kind of like weirdly reading this little statement saying he supported the heritage of South Carolina. He probably would have done better in that primary. And then, you know, he came back to South Carolina a few uh, like a month later and apologized to the people of South Carolina for lying to them, which I thought I found. I found stuff like that to be extraordinary about John McCain, but, when it came to his policies and his foreign policy i mean he was he was a hawk and i 'm a non interventionist and i i look at I look at his belief in America and I see him believing in the goodness of American government as much as the goodness of the American people and that 's sort of where he and I start to to fall apart is our view of of how government ought to function um, but but i did I did respect the fact that he was stupidly principled uh and i can identify with that in some ways
1: yeah well it, and but he was he was definitely willing to take his shots i i you know there was an article this morning in the washington post that um about uh, we're talking about everybody who was invited and who was the one big one who was not of course was <laughs> the president but um but apparently his uh his former campaign manager um uh steve schmidt and uh his uh senior advisor um John Weaver and, uh, and Nicole Wallace also, um, were not, they were excluded. I don't know whether actively or not. Really, um, and, um, uh, uh, and, and some of that is because, uh, as the paper says, they, he believed that they had, they were partly responsible for, uh, doing in Sarah Palin, um, and, um, and apparently I think Weaver and he, uh, Schultz, Schmitz and he, Schultz, Schmidt and he had, um, gotten, um, uh, had gotten uh, back together in the last four or five months. But, uh, you know, I guess you get to invite or disinvite people to your funeral.
0: Now, so are you saying <laughs> that... I don't
1: think that's a character issue. It just, I think... Just says that pet peeves still exist.
0: So, are you saying that he's mad at them for bringing Sarah Palin on, or is he mad at them for the personal destruction after the campaign that took place? Kind of
1: both during the campaign, okay. and uh, you know, he he. Um, there were other articles that suggested that he he. You know, a lot of, he got a lot of criticism, and people to this day still criticize him for it. I I kind of uh, shared his view, which was that irrespective of what she has become yeah, um, you know, she is sort of played to the to the images um, for a variety of reasons, I think, and not to her benefit. But, you know, at the time, she was a very she was the most popular governor in the United States. She had taken on big oil. Um, she she was the mother of a, of a of a disabled child or a child with a I think it was Down syndrome. Um, she had worked her way up from the bottom uh she was a tough cookie and had a very photogenic family and all that kind of stuff so well
0: she could it speak a, she could, could and, speak and to a wing of the party speak. yeah speak to a wing speak. of the party he could well it wasn't yeah. even a wing
1: then it was she and he felt <laughs> that he could he could uh shake he, she could shake things up so it, it wasn't a crazy choice um you know what what got crazy was later and i um and he i i am t- i read to the end Basically uh, defended that decision to the very end, and man, I think he probably rightly felt that there were people in the campaign who undermined her, who didn't prepare. And I, you know, you talk about history. So um, uh, certainly, um, uh, Dan Quayle had some of the same thing. You know, I was sitting in a room with Lee Atwater, and uh, the the uh, evening that George Bush announced uh, Dan Quayle was going to be his running mate, and everybody's looking around at everybody. And, um, like, oh, gee. And, um, and he came out and he was sort of like a deer in the headlights, right? <laughs> I'm right. sure some people remember that here. And he really was not, and he was, and, you know, and again, he was a rising young senator who had taken a very, um, uh, active and aggressive role in the defense committees. And he, he had a reputation as a reformer and a guy who had, um, uh, had, um, you know, uh, taken on defense and had some expertise there. So it wasn't a crazy choice in that respect, I think. Um, and I think the staff, uh, you know, everybody scrambled to uh, get him prepared. And, uh, of course, you remember a number of the the uh, infamous incidents like uh, Lloyd Benson uh, when, you know, Quayle was, I think, pretty obviously aware his age and he made a reference to Kennedy being young and and of course Benson turned around and said, "You're no John Kennedy senator," and that just was like, it's almost like Dukakis running around the in the tank with a funny looking helmet.
0: Yeah, I think it's I think both Quayle and um, Palin. and Palin. Suffered some of the same. Well, they got Peter principled. They got they they were appointed one step above their capabilities, which is exactly where Mike Pence would be if he were president. Trust me. I I live in Indiana, he was my governor. (laughs) If he if he's president, trust me, you all are about to find out what we found out in Indiana. He's just he's just he's a good talker and he's a good networker, but he ain't a bright man.
1: He may be the best thing for Donald Trump, Trump standing between Trump and impeachment.
0: So. So, so, yeah, and I think that Steve Schmidt, I remember all that. I mean, Steve Schmidt yeah. was, even during the campaign, I just remember thinking, like, why is this guy, I followed it pretty closely because I worked at a talk radio station at the time, and I was like, why is the campaign manager actively working against his own sure. candidate? Yeah, I mean, so, candidate. Yeah. so, yeah, so it's very odd. So. Is there any other news stories out there that are? I mean, it just seems like there has been so much in just the last month. It's there's two news cycles
1: a day. Um, Well, talk about lobbying. We've got people lobbying for and against uh, Kavanaugh. Yeah, you know Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, and you know by all accounts he's he's uh, kind of a reasonable, uh, right of center uh, conservative. He he uh, has. Uh, history uh he's not a crazy um he's by all accounts kind of a a principled and intelligent guy and you know of course they went after his um his his uh, credit cards apparently he spent a lot of money on uh, redskin tickets i guess and 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 took a big credit card hit for that and and uh, he he has very few assets and part of that's because he's only like unlike many lawyers in this town he has not spent a lot of time in the private sector if he'd spent 10 years or 15 years he could retire for life Uh, but this is a guy who obviously um, believes in the public sector and he he left the private sector uh, to become a judge and they're paid only so much Uh, they're paid well but not what he would have made in the private sector so you know, he, he's a guy who, like him or dislike his politics, whatever they happen to be, he is someone who has made a career of being in the public service.
0: Sure.
1: So we now have, um, I, I personally get three or four emails a day from uh, right-to-life groups, uh, you know, go out and demonstrate for Kavanaugh, and then I get another couple emails a day from the left saying he's going to destroy uh, women's right to choose, and he's going to um, undermine campaign finance if it ever happens, and on and on and on.
0: The rest of the country just doesn't seem to care. I mean, it's not...
1: No, I think that's right. It, it is on... That's real inside Washington baseball.
0: He, yeah, it's on... You know, if you go to Vox or if you go to National Review, you'll see it on their page, but it's kind of low down. And But out in the rest of the country, like, the pick was made and then we all forget it. And, you know, maybe that'll change when the confirmation hearings happen, but right now very few people are focused on any of that kind of stuff that that's happening uh, at, at that level, just because everything has to be a crisis now to get anyone's attention. And, and yeah. maybe it's always been that way, but right now it just seems like everything has to be wrapped in terms. I broke down uh, a, a, a Jake Tapper lead-in yesterday, where basically it was... The F- Florida Governor's race, where it's Trump versus Bernie and it's going to be brutal and it's like all this right. over the top hyperbole about an election and it's the only way that they can get ratings on CNN or any other media outlet for that matter is is just you know hyperbole and and well and I but I think that's I do think the the
1: lead meister on that is Trump you know he yeah. really has figured out that he wants to be the lead in the news every single day and he will do what he can uh he views it as a reality tv and i don't necessarily mean that in in a majority of sense it's just from a tactical standpoint that's that's how he thinks of it i think and and he wants to drive the leads you know back to mccain for a minute one of the things that um really uh endeared him to the press notwithstanding their personal views on one issue or another was that was the bus you know the 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 uh when he was running for uh, president, he had a bus and he drove the entire day with the press, and yeah. he would just talk and ruminate, and and I think that was so exceptionable that they gave cut him a lot of slack when they when he needed it
0: yeah it's called the straight talk express the so straight talk express yeah absolutely. there's there's a documentary on h b o called who for whom the Bell tolls about McCain that they basically made this in the last year of his life mm. and uh he mentions that in the two thousand race he did the straight talk express and he was uh you know he loved it it the press loved it people loved it it and I remember being an impressionable young guy going, this guy's awesome like this is great yeah. Uh, this There's a politician that listens, that cares, that understands people, and blah, all that nonsense. And, uh, and then they talk in the documentary about 2008, he wanted to try the same thing, but every time that he would talk to the press, or he would have the press sit in with him, the stories would get completely twisted in a way that was anti-McCain. And he's like, the press just completely changed in eight years, or maybe it was the presence of Barack Obama, but the press started posting hit pieces against me, and so I just couldn't I couldn't do it. I couldn't risk it because they had changed the way that they had done reporting. Instead of just spitballing and finding out what was going on, they had come with agendas to talk to me and then just printed whatever the agenda was, which is sort of— Well, it's become—well, that's gotcha. You know, that's yeah.
1: gotcha journalism, and I think it's hard to argue that that's not real. I think it is real. And McCain, towards, in the last couple of years, he was quoted somewhere. So it was a great little— interview on, what on TV and he said I hate the press but we need them <laughs> so, and I think that's the way a lot of politicians feel but uh, well I if think you're go- if you're good with the press you like the press yeah I, I used to actually I usually actually used to really like dealing with the press except that they're sort of slow on the uptake you know I, I used to complain to my my guys that um, you really have to explain something two and three and five and ten times. To them, and um, and if it's hard to explain it to them, just think how hard it is to explain to the public. Right, uh, you know the complexities of last last uh, topic,
0: the Jones Act.
1: You know these are very complex things.
0: Yeah, it's it's you got to
1: frame it. You got to frame it your way.
0: That press reaction to him in two thousand and eight, and I think that Ben Shapiro has made this point on his on his show that I think is pretty right on, is that McCain led to the. The first is Ben Shapiro that McCain led to Trump because the press's reaction to McCain and then the press's reaction to Mitt Romney, who are very swamp-like or establishment-type yeah, figures, yeah. it was so over the top that everybody was like, "Okay, fine, you're getting Donald Trump." And then I would say, you know, obviously anointing Sarah Palin uh, and and having and and showing that that irascible nature can really kind of get an audience. I think those two. Those three things were, were partly why McCain led to the rise of Donald Trump in some way. Hmm.
1: Yeah, a very interesting thesis, and I, I, I it's possible. But I, I do think the big issue is breaking through the noise.
0: Yeah. So All right, let's, let's move on to the Jones Act, because I was surprised. I was telling you before <clears throat> the show started that, uh, you know, I can tell you when a, a, an episode will be popular because everybody's talking about— child separation or donald trump and russia or something like that (laughs) but the jones act was a surprisingly popular uh segment and i would i didn't know anything about the jones act and i don't think a lot of our audience did either but we have um one two three questions i think here about the jones act um and four and you are one of the most uh you i mean you were you were on the Maritime Commission, or you? What was your position? I was I was Federal Maritime Commissioner. I was one of five
1: commissioners. Um, I probably gave uh, uh, my first speech. I wasn't an, a maritime guy when I went in. I was a regulation guy. I, I had, it, when I was with Bush um, in his first campaign, HW. Uh, my men H W. My mentor uh, I had a mentor. Paul McAvoy, who had been on Ford's Council of Economic Advisors. And then later, he, uh, I ran into him uh, after the campaign at Yale. He b- became one of the founding um, scholars at the School of Organization and Management, now their business school. And I was in the first class there and uh, became a mentor. But he and I, uh, after that, um w- were, I was the issue director for the campaign in 1979 when he ran the first time and lost to Reagan. Uh, uh, so Paul and I basically wrote a number of papers on on uh, deregulation, which eventually when the vice president became uh, the re- regulations are under Reagan, um, a lot of that was used as a basis for uh, the deregulation programs. But, um, but I got put on the commission in part because it was a regulatory Uh, a deal and so anyway my my first speech I'm sitting there looking at all this stuff and uh, you know we have we have the Jones Act uh, we had uh, subsidies for ship operators we have uh, subsidies on ship building we had uh, you know just kind of endless cargo preference all of these programs meant to supposedly save the industry but I would argue really they are epitome epitomes of the Great Swamp my first speech my first line was if we want to if the maritime industry wants to be competitive they might try competing for a change <laughs> <laughs> and you know that really created uh waves uh, no one had ever said that uh the consumer side of the industry in other words the people who own the cargoes who are kind of the victims of all this um they applauded and of course the labor unions and the the uh, uh the uh uh, shipbuilding companies and others were appalled. So that that was kind of fun. So yeah, I, you know, I really got into the Jones Act, and then some years later, I, uh, after I lost the Senate race, I uh, was asked by a, a really wonderful entrepreneur, Ola Scarup, up in in uh, uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, who had made a fortune uh, in shipping himself. He had invented a ship uh, called the self-offloading. Ship where you would have a conveyor belt that basically goes down to a mine or a pile of phosphate or something else, and it would roll it up into the ship, and then also then be able to take it off. Um, He he had he wanted to revitalize. um, uh, He wanted to do something to to increase the industrial base, and he thought we could revitalize shipbuilding. We could do something to create jobs there. So I ended up heading a shipbuilding. Uh, company for him for a couple years and then um later uh uh was doing other things and and uh, got the call to, by a group of farmers and and others to head up a, a jones act reform group that's kind of how i got into that it's a long story but uh, <laughs> no it's interesting. too many gory details and uh and uh you know uh, i we were lobbying basically for farmers you know, that's really what we're farmers and and um, taxpayers union and all these others. We had something we had something like we had so many trade associations between. them. They, I figured out one day that we represented over a million companies in the United States who wanted to change that law that benefited probably 500 people.
0: All right, so clearly the man knows what he's talking about when it comes to Jones Act stuff. Uh, <laughs> I've never heard anybody say, you know. So I got really into the Jones Act. That's, yeah, that's right. how we. That's how we know that you're definitely libertarian leaning because you're like, ah, oh, this government regulation. I was hell bent on destroying it. Uh, so we got some questions that I want to have you answer. Sure. Um, this is uh, more of a comment than a question, I think. Um, here in Florida, we are dealing with a horrendous algae and red tide condition that is the result of the sugar industry runoff. Sugar can be almost universally attained, and sugar from Brazil would cost one tenth of that produced in America. But sugar is str- a strategic commodity, and American production must be protected at all costs. Same as ship bottoms. Uh, so he, yeah, go ahead. That
1: that that is literally the first time I've ever heard the two compared, but it's probably uh, equally apt. Uh, the reality is that um, I don't think Brazilian sugar is one tenth; it's probably one third. But um, th- the reality is, what we do is we both subsidize the cost of of sugar growing, we restrict the supply um, of foreign that can come in. Um, and, um, and who pays the American consumers? So, so first of all, the subsidy program has cost billions and billions of dollars. I mean, literally billions of dollars, a couple hundred million dollars a year goes up and down depending on the price and the taxpayer pays it. And it goes to a handful of growers and a handful of workers. Um, yeah, many of them down in my home state, the Florida, the, the Fanjul brothers are the kind of the biggest, uh, 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 users of these subsidies. And I ha- have to admit, I have a good friend of many years who is one of their key lobbyists. And when I ran, I refused to take their money. And of course, I lost because I didn't take it. But, you know, they they are probably the biggest, uh, I, you know, maybe next week we can figure out the number, but they may be among the biggest, they certainly are among the biggest um, contributors to political campaigns. I saw a number of, uh, yesterday that they may contribute on average to 50 percent of all the congressmen and senators in the, in the congress Jeez. so uh and kind of the result of this is that um sugar in the u.s costs is more than twice the average price of sugar um in, in around the world so you know uh, the way it kind of works is if if um, the growers grow and they because of market conditions they can't get over something like 21 or 22 cents a pound or whatever the number is um the the government and the taxpayers make up the difference up to 30 some 35 cents more or less um i think that's the number but the taxpayer makes up the difference and then the government buys it and turns around and sells it at half that price to the ethanol producers So, you know, it's kind of this vicious cycle, and we can talk about ethanol sometime, too. That's kind of a big uh, swamp kind of deal as well. Yeah. Um, But it really is. It's
0: it's bad for the environment, and it's bad for our food supply, and and it's bad for— The part of it
1: that's bad is that they use so much uh, water, and they divert so much uh, from the— from the water flowing down through the Lake Okeechobee area and all that in Florida that uh, and of course all the waste and everything uh, creates uh, conditions of um uh, that create which you know by uh, bioloading um too much oxygen too much this too much that but um a- and it's all supposedly to save jobs but in fact um there are numbers that would show there was a recent study I think that showed that um, that it, it may save a couple thousand jobs in sugar but it costs perhaps 30,000 jobs in industries dependent on it uh, probably 10,000 in the. US food industry alone because remember sugar is used in candy and and a whole lot of foods that you wouldn't even want to know about um, so it distorts, The market it harms domestic businesses it's for a a very small number of people Um, another study suggested that in fact they would actually increase jobs by a substantial amount in the sugar industry if they got rid of the subsidies because they'd be able to sell more and they and the sugar companies could also import it at a lower price and then and you know go through the manufacturing process so you know this this is sugar and the jones act are two of the most swamp like programs you could possibly come across they are huge taxpayer subsidies they pay huge amounts to politicians to maintain them through uh, you know campaign contributions and it all goes to the advantage of a very 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 small number of people literally in the thousands the lower thousands of, of people all right, so. And most of it doesn't go to those – to the workers. It goes to the growers, the owners of these firms. Like the And then the, the, poli- and then the politicians. That's, <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. Uh, right. Hody writes so – he- So it's a good analogy, the fact that he – now, I've never heard it called a strategic commodity. I, I, you know it may well be. Um, and in fact, there are a lot of people who think that the Jones Act is a uh, strategically important. But um, as we discussed last time, the reality is uh, what. Uh, in fact, I think one of your viewers sent in a question saying, "Isn't this critical to national security for shipbuilding and, and crews and all that?" And obviously, in my mind, he was a shill for somebody. Um, and the answer is no. Um, contrary to to the belief or the the religion around the Jones Act, it actually has destroyed domestic shipping and all of the jobs that go with it and sent all that used to be carried on ships over to rail and truck.
0: All right, so let's take another question. Hody writes, The Jones Act is a great example of a law with good intentions that didn't have the effect that it should. My biggest beef with it is this. Whenever disaster strikes, that's when we repeal it. Puerto Rico's economic crisis, hurricanes, etc., But disaster relief can only begin once it is repealed, and usually we'd like a quick response to disasters. It limits our response time to fix these problems while it exists. The other problem that I have with it is that it is supposed to stop terrorism and attacks by sea. But whenever it is lifted, our enemies never seem to be able to take advantage of the gap and attack us. The only other defense I've heard of it is that it helps our economy by forcing us to hire American workers and use American ships. But you've already discussed in great detail how this type of artificial activity just shifts the cost from taxpayers and the consumers to the taxpayers and the consumers. Of course, there's always the typical libertarian argument that if we have to depend on government to relinquish this power during a crisis, is it a smart move on our part? But I'm sure it's played out. So he mentions a national security. Why is the right. Jones Act considered to be essential to our national security and why is that a complete misnomer?
1: Well that he, he makes exactly the right point. Um, I think most people who actually know something about it would not actually consider it to be critical to national security, but that is that is exactly what its supporters say. And remember there're only you know basically a handful of companies that are Jones Act uh, shipping companies that own ships that are, you know under that rubric um, Uh, They employ, again, you're talking literally in the low thousands of people, although they will like to tell you that it's millions. They count everybody who works on the wharves and the docks and in the entire industry, including the, sh- you know, the the ship brokers and everybody that can possibly control to do. But it's really only a handful of thousands directly, um, and uh, they would employ many more if they didn't have to pay so much for ships. American ships cost three to five times more than ships built in the world market. But he- he's right. Um, We have to suspend it in virtually every crisis. And even during the first Gulf War, um, we had so few mariners, and it's supposed to be so crucial to providing mariners. But, of course, to have a mariner, you have to have a ship. And because it costs so much, we don't have many. Um, uh, So they actually, the um, head of the, the Maritime Administration, actually requested permission to hire foreigners to run some of the ships under U.S. flag uh so um it is suspended it's suspended for um, things like puerto rico it's suspended for uh, uh, you know we don't have enough te- uh, uh ships to small ships to clean up after some of these big oil spills that's all part of the equation of the jones act and associated laws we you know there's a, a sister law to it called the passenger vessel act and um, i'm not sure we have any real jones act deepwater uh, ships left that you'd call passenger ships. I know one one of two remaining fifty year old ships sank on the way over to Hawaii about six, about ten or fifteen years ago, and the sister ship uh, ended up in a dry dock because they couldn't get anybody to fix it.
0: Yeah, but, the yeah. and you you could look at it from a national security standpoint. Three thousand Puerto Ricans died in Hurricane yeah. Maria. I mean, how many of those lives could have been saved by a quicker response time instead of well, waiting for the Jones right. Act to get well? And, up? and let
1: me let me. And this debate is actually going on. The the Trump administration has asked for public comment on uh, regulatory changes in the in the maritime industry. And of course, a lot of us now believe this is one significant change, uh, both of law and regulation, you can undertake. And the Puerto Rican situation has definitely come up. The the um, the. Uh, The Jones Act companies, and I think there are three that serve Puerto Rico, argue that um, the docks were down and crowded and everything sat at the docks, so they couldn't do anything anyway. And they also note correctly that there's no law that prohibits international ships from coming into Puerto Rico or any other American port. Or, by the way, for that matter, traveling up the Mississippi River, um, as long as they're just... Uh, picking up cargo to go to some foreign port or delivering cargo from some port, foreign port to an American port. They just can't carry cargo from one American port to another American port. So so technically, the Jones Act uh, was not an impediment to the Puerto Rican recovery in the sense that foreigners could certainly have brought in um, goods. But in fact, it was an impediment because um, the kind of generators and things that they really needed um, would have come much more quickly out of the United States and there weren't sufficient there wasn't sufficient Jones act capacity um, and um, and of course everything that was shipped cost more so and more and of course it also distorts the market so the fact that part of the market is restricted means that the other part of the markets pricing is distorted too um, and uh, i know that there was a study done recently by well in fact we should talk about our little friend duncan hunter <laughs> um who that's a recent washington insider story um but uh the uh, uh he he duncan hunter is a congressman in california took his father's seat his father duncan hunter was head of the merchant marine committee and a major major advocate for um uh, the Jones Act, and of course received major, major money from the Jones Act and other American flag companies uh, uh, as campaign contributions. And his son was just uh, indicted the other day in, for diverting a quarter million dollars worth of campaign funds for personal use. And it's quite a seamy, uh, you know, story when you look at it, and you might want to look that up on the papers, but he's a huge advocate for it. Um, so it's kind of ironic he's gotten caught with his hand in his own till, but um, he he uh, released a so called study the other day uh, that's, that um, said that the prices in Puerto Rico for goods were the same as, on seven goods, were the same as the prices on the mainland. Uh, now, I have no idea how they picked these seven things, but of course, there are tens of thousands of things which are sold in both places. And the gap is anywhere from, you know, 18% or more uh, on prices. Um, you know, I think someone said that yeah you know, a pint of ice cream was that cost you know about five bucks in on the mainland would cost seven or eight bucks in Puerto Rico, kind of thing. so, and it shouldn't. It really shouldn't. So okay. very complicated. but this guy's right. It, 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 I have always thought that one of the great ironies was that every time we had a crisis, this law, which is supposedly for national security, had to be you know it had to be suspended. In the, in the interest of, by the way, national security. That is the, the reason for the suspense.
0: Well, national security doesn't mean defense or uh, it doesn't mean right. solving crises that come up from natural disasters. Now, uh, you know, national defense now means offense. Right. That's um, exactly right. It's been well, redefined. Of course, that's
1: also being given as the reason for a number of the tariffs, you know, yeah. tariffs.
0: So. Exactly. Um Catherine, and I, I think this is it's funny the way that Catherine wrote this. She didn't mean it the way that it sounds, but it's funny. Right. Uh, your little talk about the Jones Act the other day was the first I had learned of it. I was reminded of of a shipyard in my hometown. A friend of mine welded for them, and they both built what must be these Jones Act ships and did repair on old ships and ferries too. I always knew the small port town used to be much more active with a lot more maritime industry, and now I wonder what kind of impact the Jones Act had. How we repeat our history? The Wikipedia for the Merchant Marine Act of 1920 end, had me ended up checking out how similar to the British Navigation Acts that helped fuel our revolution were. The Navigation Acts, Wikipedia writes, required all of a colony's imports to be either from Britain or resold by British merchants in Britain, no matter what price could be obtained elsewhere. So I thought that was kind of an interesting parallel. Well, that it, basically, it is. Yeah. Well,
1: it's actually it's actually kind of a little parallel to MAGA, you know. <laughs> that uh we want to buy stuff from ourselves which is not very efficient but uh she, she also makes a good point and and it's worth noting that not all shipbuilding in the united states is crazy um um you know the the u.s is actually very good at and in her hometown which is probably i didn't see where she said whether well, it's mississippi or whatever i think but she's along? West,
0: west coast Okay, oh, along
1: nice. the Gulf Coast, and then there are on the West Coast and along the East Coast, too, a number of small shipyards, which are very good at building small boats and ships, you know, tugboats and ferry, and not ferries, we don't build those well, but tugboats and, and um, uh uh, oil tenders and that kind of uh, technical v- vessel and we're pretty good at it and it makes a sen- lot of sense to do it and we could be very competitive at it if you know we um, we focused on the global market we're also uh, really good at building barges uh, we have that down pat and maybe better than anybody else and of course a lot of our cargo moves by barge up down the rivers so she's right a- and uh, i think a lot of us would argue yes the jones act did do them in because um if you can bring in, uh, if you could bring in ships from outside, um, y- yes, you would have a more robust shipping uh, industry, which over time would grow and grow, and and demand would go to the U.S. as well as to other countries. And plus, the fact that you're repairing ships that are operating every day also helps you learn something about how to build ships better. But it's not the way it works, unfortunately. But I do think her point about the Navigation Acts was very interesting. You know. Uh, it it, uh, it the whole point there was to try to keep all goods inside the the uh, the U.S. British trade and um, um, it, and that was kind of a spin-off of mercantilism, which we could probably also talk talk about at some point too. Um, it, but there's a little bit of this going on right now in the tariffs and uh, the the make America great again by buying from Americans only Americans kind of thing.
0: All right. So, in the interest of time, I'm going to move on to the Giner, diner's guide to DC. All right. <laughs> so now you are you are quite the. Um what what would uh, a, gastro, a gastronomer what, what I don't would know th- I like to eat yeah I mean, you like to <laughs> and, <laughs> and so um,
1: and my wife and I you know I I don't want to cook every night I am the cook but um so I love to eat and I think I've said before I live in Logan Circle which is uh, around a 15th and P about five blocks from the White House and uh, we have we're just off 14th Street which has uh, probably 50 restaurants and bars just within you know a very short distance and 100 and, 60 or 70 within six walking blocks, so so, so I thought what I'd do well, is talk—yeah, Well, go we've
0: got a letter from Tom. Do you want to read the letter from yeah, Tom? Yeah, what does Tom say? I don't have it in front of me. Okay, I'll read it to you. Uh, and this this must be one of your friends, because I love the way he starts this letter, too. Rob, I heard your podcast with The Libertarian. You got in some good jabs on the Jones Act. I don't know about <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about your I did not know about your food interest. My wife and I have great interest in food and wine. Maybe you could provide some suggestions the next time we're in the swampy city on the Potomac. We once had a very good meal at Jose Andres Turkish Restaurant, Zantinia. How do you say? Zeytina. Zeytina. Yes, yes, Tom. So, uh, so if you have any good recommendations for our listener Tom, that'd be great. Well, uh, and Tom, uh, I do know Tom. He,
1: he is actually a guy who's written a lot. He's an academic and, uh, and he's a terrific writer and, uh, and, uh, we've been involved with him on the Jones Act. Interestingly, um, Jose Andre, who he mentions is a global figure, but he really, um, he, he came to the United States. He's a Spanish American chef. Um, a lot of people credit him with bringing what you know, small plate dining for good or ill. I sometimes I get really tired of that. Yeah. But I, but on the other hand, if you want to try a bunch of different things, it's a good way to live. He yeah. has restaurants now. He started out in in Washington, but he's in Washington, Philly, LA, Las Vegas, South Beach, Florida, Dorado, Puerto Rico, um, and uh, he's also a great, really great. Um, he's a good raconteur, and he's a great. Um, um, philanthropist, you know, he's been down in Puerto Rico for months and months with a team, um, cooking um, tens and tens of thousands of meals for all of these people who are going hungry. We, you know, he'd been talking about Puerto Rico, and he's doing that. But he, he, he began um, under a really famous chef, uh, Ferran Adria, at a restaurant called El Bulli, which was uh, for a time considered the number one restaurant in the, on the, in the world. And I, as a foodie, uh, and remember, not only do I do all the cooking, my son is a chef now in uh, Sydney, Australia. And if i put a plug in, if you guys ever go to Sydney, you should go to, um, the restaurant, which is called tequila mockingbird <laughs> and it's central American kind of modernist cuisine. But, um, so he, he, uh, went from there and then he, he, um, uh, uh, eventually came to the U S. Uh, and, uh, he went to work for another guy. I know Rob Wilder at, uh, 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 with him in a group now called think food. And of course, Jose now is the big cheese and all this, but, uh, you know, he's not only done, uh, Puerto Rico. He also, uh, um, uh uh, opened a big kind of central kitchen in uh, Haiti after that earthquake and stuff like that. And for the politicians in the group, uh, part of the inside baseball, he was going to have a, a restaurant in the Trump International Hotel in Washington. Uh, that's why however, I know
0: his name. I remember the story. That's why you know okay. his name. Yeah. And
1: after Trump made uh, dispar- disparaging comments about Mexicans in June of 15, he Uh, withdrew from his contract with the Trump Organization saying it was an insult to him and to his workers and and all that. And um, Trump immediately sued him and Andre countersued and they finally reached a settlement kind of, I think, April or May of last year. But he is continues to be an outspoken critic. And and so he's a darling of several sides of (laughs) ideologically. But anyway, but he he, um, with his partner, Rob Wilder, um, uh owned several restaurants. By the way, Rob Wilder is also a really interesting entrepreneur. Uh, began a series of restaurants that we used to take our kids to in Washington. But he also has recently come out with The Wine Game. And uh, uh, maybe sometime we'll get him, him to talk about it. But uh, his probably signature restaurant is called Minibar. Uh, which, um, it's, uh, basically 25 small courses, six diners, hard, hard to get into, um, had two stars from the Michelin guide, uh, uh, two years ago. And, um, so that's one of his big ones. He, he's had some that have succeeded and some that have not, uh, used to have one called America eats out in McLean. I think he's reopened it in a new version somewhere inside town here. Um, uh, in, in, uh, Las Vegas. And, uh, in LA, he has a restaurant called Bazaar, which is really cool. Uh, um, and I think he's opened one of those in Miami, um, in DC, kind of the one that, uh, Tom mentioned Zatina is, um, Mediterranean, Greek, Turkey, Lebanese food, really, really good. Uh, smack downtown. Um, he has another one called Oyamel, which is also small plates and, uh, what you call antojitos, and um, and that's also in Michelin's guide. Haleo um, was, the, I think, the first one they opened in Washington. That's really very traditional Spanish tapas. That's down uh, near the uh, Portrait Gallery and the um, the uh, the um, uh, the uh, Verizon Center. Um, yeah, he has another one. China, let's see, uh, China Chilcano is in a really interesting development uh, down. Uh, 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 in the center of town now, in the old convention center space, which has been torn down and made into a bunch of new buildings, but he's he's just a really terrific chef, and and uh, uh, so if you go to Washington, you want to try uh, you want to try. Well, he also has a kind of a, a sandwich joint called Beefsteak, which <laughs> is vegetable. Casual food, but you want to try China Chilcano, you want to try Haleo, which was his first, Oyamel, um, which is uh, really much kind of higher end, uh, uh, Zaitina, which is great. Uh, and if you can plan months and months in advance and already spend a lot of money, you want to make a mini bar a stop. Yeah. They also have great uh, drinks as well. So that's my restaurant suggestions for this time.
0: Awesome, great. Well, that is uh that is all the time that we've got. I mean, I any final thoughts for you? I'll go first and let you have the last word. You mentioned Gary Trudeau. He is the uh the producer, creator of one of my favorite shows. It's called Alpha House on Amazon <laughs> and right. it stars uh John Goodman and uh and a few other people and it's just it's about these congressmen and senators who live in this house. And it's uh, very well done, and it's very funny, and unfortunately, it, d- it stops like right in the middle, and they didn't do any more seasons. But uh, so it's but it's wor- it's worth it while it lasted. So that's that's my recommendation, my final thought for the episode. I'll give the final thoughts to you, Rob. Well, I, I
1: will uh, key off two things. I, I think. Um a lot of the talk is what's going to happen in the elections. I'll say quickly. I, you know, I think I may have mentioned last week. Charlie Cook, a great prognosticator of polls, said that it really comes down to the Republican seawall against the Democratic um, uh, tide and surge. Will the surge go over the wall? Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, I'm I'm still predicting that that neither house turns, although it'll be close. Hmm. We may even pick up some in the Senate. Republicans may pick up some in the Senate, and I understand from you that your buddy uh, Gary Johnson is doing really well in the polls too.
0: <laughs> you didn't, you didn't even know this, but yeah, uh, the Libertarian dropped out about a month ago, and Gary Johnson was drafted to run for Senate in New Mexico, and the first poll had him at twenty-one, and the second poll had him at twenty-eight percent. And you go, oh, and uh, and what? How many? And I go three-way, and you go, no, like, and so, but the Secretary of State yesterday or two days ago is uh she's on the ballot and so she reinstated straight ticket voting for this election and now she's Jesus. being sued by both the Republicans and the libertarians uh for that move because it <laughs> gives a statistical advantage to obviously democrats in a state that has a lot of democrats and yeah so uh but yeah Gary Johnson could be the next senator from New Mexico Rand Paul actually endorsed him as did a Republican candidate in Maine today
1: Wow. Interesting. Well, this will be fun. You know, you and I are gonna to have to do a lot more shows yeah. on politics as we go.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be a good time. All right, great. All right, thanks. Thanks so much, Rob. I appreciate you coming on the show and looking forward to you talking here in the next week or so. Lots of fun. Bye-bye. Right,
1: bye bye. Bye.